Okay. Nadine, would you come up and pray for me before I preach this morning? Yeah. Lord, I thank you for my husband. I pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit right now. Thank you for the work he puts in to preaching your word to your people. But I pray, Lord, that you can edit. And so if you need to edit anything, that you would give him wisdom and knowledge to go to the place that you have him to go. I thank you, Lord. Just give him your peace, fill him with your spirit and your wisdom. Amen. Thank you. For about a month now, I guess my heart has just been raw. It's just been tender. I've been telling, I told Nadine last night before we went to bed, I feel like I could cry in a second. And I feel that again this morning. It's just bubbling up over me. Um, during worship, I, I was getting um. Boy, I'm just gonna, I gotta find that verse. Here. I, I uh, found a verse and then went away. First Samuel 16. This isn't my sermon. This is just what I was sensing from God. Uh, beforehand I felt like God was going to speak to us for our church and, and this is where I got 1 Samuel 16 this is when Samuel anoints David to be king but he, Samuel and it says of Samuel in the scripture that none of his words fell to the ground and what, is, what that means Samuel's a prophet it meant that everything Samuel said came to pass that's a pretty amazing track record for a prophet, one of the most anointed, most gifted, powerful prophets and, um, that there ever was. And, and so, uh, so God tells Samuel to go to Jesse's house. He's going to pick a new king that day. And so he goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse lines up all his sons, and, and Samuel decides that um, he looks at the oldest son. He's the oldest, and he's the tallest. And this is what Samuel says to himself. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. You look, it just made sense to Samuel. I mean, he's, he's gifted, he's anointed, he's got great, incredible levels of revelation. And he's like, this, this is the guy. And this is what God says to him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in a sense, that that's really what God would say to the Charlottetown Vineyard this morning. That he looks at the heart. And he wants you to be encouraged. We, we may not be the biggest, and we might not have the best, and you know, we might not be, have the height, and be taller and bigger than everybody else. But God comes and visits with us because we invite him to come. And he speaks to us because we've decided we would listen. 
He knows our hearts. He knows that we want to receive from him and that it's his delight to come and speak to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who have the same kind of heart that David did. Men and women who would be after your heart. Make it so, God. Amen? Okay, on, on to today's sermon. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 and continue a series on healing. This will be my eighth message in the series on healing from Mark's Gospel. Last week, Angie preached for us. First time she preached a sermon uh, and she did an excellent job. We really appreciated having you in the pulpit last week. And we can give her a hand. And she taught us uh, concerning a process. The uh, process that the apostles went through in learning how to heal the sick. And she took us very well, I thought, through the scriptures on how you know, they didn't do so good in the beginning. You know, And that as time went along and they practiced and they did it more, uh, by the end they got a whole lot better. And, um, so I thought it was a really well put together and well thought out message and, uh, and that you did a great job for us. So thank you so much. I really enjoy, one of the things I've loved doing over the years as a pastor is make opportunity for people uh, to do things they've, they've never done before. Somebody gave me an opportunity as a very, I was 16 years old and they would let me lead a prayer group with 250 people. Could you believe that at 16 years old? There'd be people, you know, everything from, you know, probably 12 year olds to 80-year-olds in the room, and they let this 16-year-old kid leave a meeting with 250 people. They gave me a chance. They gave me a spot. They made opportunity for They let me play. And look what God did. He could use even the likes of me. It's astonishing what God could do. So because someone did that for me, and I have a bunch of people over the years do that, make space for me, I really enjoy making space for other people. So last week was great fun. Um, okay, today I'd like to glean some wisdom, I hope, from some two healing encounters that Jesus has in Mark chapter 5. The first is the, the woman with the issue of blood, and the second is Jairus' daughter. Afterwards, we'll leave time to, for some words of knowledge, and we'll, we'll minister to one another. I'm going to be using the message today. Usually I preach out of the NIV, but I don't know, every once in a while I like to mix it up and just keep it fresh. And... Um, I like to give credit where credit's due. The commentary by David Guzik from the website, The Blue Letter Bible, was a really useful tool for me uh, this week in preparing to so give out some credit there. So verses 21 to 24, this is from the message out of Mark chapter 5. After Jesus crossed over by boat, a large crowd met him at the seaside. One of the meeting place leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his knees beside him, and as he begged, My dear daughter is at death's door. Come and lay hands on her so she will get well and live. Jesus went with him, the whole crowd lagging along, pushing and jostling him. So it begins by saying, after Jesus crossed over by the boat. Remember, um, just prior to this, Jesus had cast a legion of demons out of a man. And all those demons went into the pigs, and the pigs went down the hill and died. We, we covered that. They drowned. And after that event, the people pleaded with Jesus to, to leave. They did not want him to stay in the region. So, Scripture tells us Jesus got back in the boat. Well, we pick up the story where the boats now come to shore, and Jesus is getting out of the boat. He's crossed back over. And as he gets there, there's a large crowd it is, is there to meet him. Jesus' reputation is growing. Signs 
and wonders, healing the sick and casting out demons, catches people's attention and crowds have gathered. So Jesus has left the Gentile region around the Sea of Galilee where he met that Gadarean demoniac and now he's returns to the Jewish towns on the other side of the lake and large crowds immediately come. Included in this large crowd is Jairus. The way the message puts it is he's one of the meeting place leaders. The NIV says one of the synagogue leaders. Other translations define or describe Jairus as a ruler or an official. Jairus was a man of position. He was a man of responsibility and standing in the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was somewhat like a modern-day pastor or an associate pastor. He managed both the spiritual and the business affairs of the synagogue. And so he comes to Jesus, and he comes in desperation. Scripture tells us that he fell on his knees beside him, and he begged. Why? Because his daughter is near death. He says, this is, he says my dear daughter is at death's door. He has the reaction that any father would have. Now, when you consider the already building tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, this really is somewhat of a risky endeavor, a risky action for Jairus to take. It's risky on his part. But this is his daughter. And he's desperate. Under these conditions, who cares about synagogue politics? And who cares what the neighbors might say? His dear daughter is dying, and this Jesus just might be able to help. And so he says to Jesus, come and lay hands on her so she'll get well. Obviously, Jairus had at least some measure of confidence in Jesus. Maybe he'd heard the stories of all those, the signs and wonders, the healings and the miracles that, that Jesus has already performed. Maybe he was there for some of it. Maybe he was one of the guys who was at Peter's house when they pulled open the roof and let the guys, let the paralyzed guy down, you know, the four friends, right in front of Maybe he was there for that. I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but he's aware, he's certainly aware, that Jesus has power to heal, and that his daughter's in desperate condition, and, he's, and he sought Jesus out. And he's thinking, if Jesus would just come and touch my daughter, same way he touched the leper, the same way he touched Peter's mother-in-law, so many others. And maybe physical healing will take place again. Come and lay hands on her so she will get well and live. Maybe this is just how he thought it worked, that Jesus had to go and physically be present. Well, he, that's how he, he, he'd heard it worked. Jesus touched other people, and so if Jesus will just come and touch my daughter... He'll get better as well. She'll get better. Maybe he never considered it to be some alternative that Jesus could do it from a distance. Maybe he didn't want to take the chance. I think it's a critical situation. Let's get this healing guy on the scene and do, do what he does. Whatever else Jairus was thinking, he was certainly thinking that maybe Jesus can save my baby girl. It's interesting to note, in a different circumstance, in Luke chapter 7, there's a Roman centurion who needs somebody healed, a servant healed. And he came to Jesus and, and said, heal my servant. Jesus didn't even go to the centurion's house to heal that servant. He simply pronounced 
The servant healed from a distance. But here Jesus doesn't demand that of Jairus. He doesn't demand that Jairus shows the same level of faith that the centurion did. He simply responds to the measure of faith that Jairus has. And the text gives the impression that Jairus asked and Jesus immediately left. He just went with him. There's no conversation, no discussion, no qualifications, no interview. He just went with them. There's a difference between knowledge and faith. This pagan Roman soldier had faith. We know he had faith because in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, this is what Jesus says of that centurion. He says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This man had faith. Sometimes educated religious leaders, we have knowledge. And maybe not so much faith. Sadly, theologians, though often are men of knowledge, they're not necessarily men of faith. Knowledge, yes. Information, yes. Education, yes. Faith, sadly, not always. My mentor, John Nyan, told me a story years ago. He said when he was in seminary, he got into a, a heated debate with one of the professors concerning a biblical text. And they went back and forth for a while. John was a brilliant man. And he was an excellent teacher. And I could see him doing this. It sounded just, the story he told me sounded just like him. Sounded, he, would, he would love to stand up for the cause of whatever he was believing in the moment and just go at it with his professor. And so finally, exasperated, the professor turned to him and said, Nyan! I don't believe this stuff. I just teach it. This is in seminary. Just kind of jolted him. Right? You could have knowledge and not have faith. You could have lots of information. <laughs> you could have a job in a seminary or a Bible college and not necessarily have faith. We need that to change. The world needs that to change. The church needs that to change. We need to raise up a generation of men, say like Randy Clark. Anybody see Randy Clark when he, he was here about a year ago? Randy Clark is a brilliant man. I mean, he's got, he's got truckloads of faith. Tractor trailers loads of faith. But he's brilliant. I don't know, he's written 30 or 40 books. He's got his doctorate. He's a brilliant man. I love listening to him. He can go on and on and on. Talk about scripture text, the church history. I mean, just amazing. Just listen. We need more men like that who can bring to the table both the information, the education, the knowledge, and marry it with faith. That would be powerful. One commentator I found on, on this text is um, Andrew Clark, uh, excuse me, Adam Clark, and he noticed four things that Jairus did well. The first was that he put himself in the presence of Jesus. The text says that one of the meeting place leaders named Jairus came. He put himself in Jesus' presence. The second thing he did is he humbled himself sincerely before Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he fell to his knees. That's pretty humble posture, right? He wasn't saying, hey, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such -such synagogue. <laughs> you should know who I am and come to my house and take care of business for me. No. He wasn't standing on title or position or status or influence. He dropped his knees before Jesus. He made his request with a holy earnestness, Clark says. 
beside himself, the text tells us, he begged Jesus. And the fourth thing that Clark said, Jairus said right, is that he had total confidence in the power and the goodness of Jesus when he says, my dear daughter is at death's door. Come and lay hands on her so she will get well and live. Verse 24 ends with these words. Jesus went with them, and the whole crowd lagging along, pushing and jostling them. And then something happened. And something happened on the way to Jairus' house. I can think if I'm Jairus, I'm in desperate circumstances. My daughter's sick and she's dying. And even though there were these great crowds around him, somehow I've captured Jesus' attention. I've made my request, and Jesus has agreed. I've got hope. I've gone from hopelessness to hope. And Jesus is going to come to my house. And just like I've seen him heal so many other people, he's going to heal my little girl. And we're on our way there. And then something happens. Verses 25 to 34. A woman who had suffered a condition of hemorrhaging for 12 years, a long succession of physicians had treated her and treated her badly, taking all her money and leaving her worse off than before, had heard about Jesus. She slipped in from behind and touched his robe. She was thinking to herself, if I can put a finger on his robe, I can get well. The moment she did it, the flow of blood dried up. She could feel the change and knew her plague was over and done with. At the same moment, Jesus felt energy discharging from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciple says, what are you talking about? With this crowd pushing and jostling you, you're asking who touched me? Dozens have touched you. He went on asking and looking around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened, knowing she was the one, stepped up in fear and trembling, knelt before him and gave him the whole story. Jesus said to her daughter, you took a risk of faith. And now you're healed and whole. Live well. Be blessed. Be healed of your plague. Powerful, right? Whew. So there's an interruption on the way to Jairus' house. This woman who's suffered this condition for 12 years. This woman who's in desperate condition. This, a condition that not only just made her physically weak. Imagine you're bleeding for 12 years. I'm thinking weakness is part of the deal, right? Not only made her physically weak, but it made her ceremonially and socially unclean. In first century Israel, this is a very big deal. And this is a burden that she's lived under for 12 years. See, according to the Jewish ideas of the time, this woman, if this woman had touched anyone because she was unclean because of this blood flow, if she touched anyone, she made them ceremonially unclean. An uncleanness that would not allow them to take part in any aspect of Israel's worship. This is according to Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 31. You can look it up for yourself. According to the law of her people, she was divorced from her husband. She could not live in her home, ostracized from all of society, she must not come into contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the services of the synagogue and shut out from the women's court in the temple. And if all that isn't bad enough, that's terrible. 
If that wasn't bad enough, the text tells us that a long succession of physicians had treated her and treated her badly, taking all of her money and leaving her worse off than before. So she's tried to get this treated. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor. Not only have they not made her better, they've made her worse, and now she's poor too. She's in desperate circumstances, and now she's all out of money. This woman is desperate. She's at the end of a rope. She's done all that she knows how to do. She's out of options. And then she sees Jesus. And verse 28 says she slipped in from behind, touched his robe, thinking to herself, if I can just put a finger on his robe, I can get well. Now thinking about this from her perspective, her condition's embarrassing. She's already ceremonially unclean. She would be condemned for touching Jesus. She's not allowed to touch anybody. She'd be condemned for even being in this crowd where people are pressing against one another. She's not by the law of the land. She's breaking the law in this moment. She's breaking the rules. So obviously she wants to do this in secret. If she's had this condition for 12 years, people know. So she's trying to do this on the sly. She, for obvious reasons, she wanted this to be done secretly. She wouldn't want to openly ask Jesus to heal her like Jairus did with his daughter. But she thought, if I can just touch him, I'll get better. I mean, why did she think that? I, so far in, in our text, there's, there's no other account where just touching Jesus' clothes healed anybody. There's... There's no biblical reference at this point that this is a model for healing. I mean, if there were, would they just rip Jesus' robe off and chop it up into pieces and and for a $500 offering you can get a piece of it too? I don't know. What would they do? There's, there's, no, there's no standard here for this. This is just her idea. This is her desperation giving her some innovation in a moment. So how could God honor that? How could God honor healing in this way? Because he's vastly more concerned with what than how. He, God is more concerned with his daughter's wholeness and healing than he's concerned with the exact process of how it happened. And so God, as we study healing, remember that. God is more concerned with what than with how. We get all wrapped up in how. If I can do step one, it'll lead me to step two, and then I can do step three and four, and at step five, the person gets healed. And I can understand, that's how we're wired. I understand that that's how we think. But his ways are not our ways. And sometimes God is extraordinarily creative. And he'll use the most unlikely of methods and the most unlikely of people to do the things he wants to do. And so even though it had never been done that way before, God allowed that just the touch of the hem of his clothes and this woman who had been sick and suffering for a dozen years is instantly and miraculously set free. 
God's more interested in her than he's interested in procedure. God responded to her desperation. Have you ever felt desperate? Have you ever felt desperate? God hears your heart's cry in your desperation. He doesn't turn a deaf ear. Thank God Jesus' theological box for healing was bigger than that of the religious status quo. And guess what? His box is bigger than your box too. And so like Jairus, this woman is desperate. I'd call it a holy desperation. And a holy desperation will make you do some wild and crazy things. The scriptures tell us that the moment she did it, the moment she touched him, the flow of blood dried up. Now, according to the thinking of this day, when this unclean woman touched Jesus, it would have made Jesus unclean. But because of the nature of Jesus and the power of God, that's not how it worked. When she touched his garment, Jesus wasn't made unclean. She was made clean. She was made whole. And it's the same thing with the cross. When, when Jesus became our sin on the cross, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, when he became our sin, Jesus didn't become a sinner. He took on our sin, and we became free. And we became clean. And we became whole, because such is the power of his purity and his wholeness, his holiness. When Jesus became our sin on the cross, it made us clean, and it set us free. The text tells us that she could feel the change and knew the plague was over and done with. Uh, at that same moment, Jesus felt energy discharging from him. So when the woman was healed, both the woman and Jesus knew that something had happened. She felt in her body that it had happened, and Jesus felt the power had gone from him. I can tell you over the years as I've prayed for people, sometimes there's a give and take in the spirit. I've prayed for probably everybody in this room at one time or another. I can tell you, there are times that I've prayed for people, and um, there can be like I, what I would call a push and a pull. I've prayed for some people, and their shields are up. It's almost like I'm praying for them and bouncing off of them. You know, sometimes I wonder why did you come up for prayer at all? But they're so closed. They're they're in such defensive mode. I can remember one guy I prayed for. It was right here. It was like not long after I got here, I came up to pray. And he, and he kind of steeled himself like this. He kind of turned sideways and put his head down and looked his eyes up at me like, go ahead, I dare you. And I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> I prayed for him. I'm not sure that much happened that day, but it was, it was funny to me. So shut down is, you know, hard to receive. And I pray for some people in situations like that. And it's like, and I'll just say, be at peace. It's okay. You can let your shields down. And for some people, that's enough. That's all they need to heal. Here. And the shields come down, and they're able to receive. And then there are other people. And I pray for them, and as soon as I touch them, I could feel the whatever God has in me, almost like it's getting sucked out of me faster than I can give it away. And they just take it all in. They take everything I had and more. So it's kind of cool. You ever pray for people, and you watch them kind of waver back and forth like this? I pray for people, and, and they'll fall backwards. 
I prayed for other people and they fall forward. And sometimes, sometimes, this isn't a rule, this is my observations as, as I do this stuff. It's how their spirit is responding to what the Holy Spirit's doing through me, them as the prayee, me as the prayer in the moment. And sometimes when they fall forward, it's like they can't, they want more and more and more and more and more. And sometimes when they fall backwards, not, this isn't a rule, it's not every single time, but I've noticed. Sometimes when they fall backwards, it's like they've gotten all that they could get. And they go. So there's, a, there's definitely a push and pull going on. There's a desperation in this woman, and she touches Jesus, and it happens in such a way that Jesus could feel the power go out from him. I understand what that feels like. Not at this degree, but I've had that experience. And so Jesus turned to the crowd and asked, who touched me? Who touched me? People are pressing in all around. He's probably being touched by a dozen different people all at the same time. But he's not talking about that kind of touch. He's not talking about a physical touch. He's talking about a spiritual touch. Something that you could feel in the spirit. I can remember being at a, at a conference once. And, and uh, my friend Doug Addison was there. And he was praying for another friend of mine. And, um, and they were both standing behind me. There's a room full of people who are kind of packed together, and there are different people praying for everybody all around, but they're like right behind me, like couldn't be more than a foot away. And I'm not paying, I know that they're praying, you could hear that they're praying, but I'm not paying attention to them, I'm just kind of looking around what's going on in the room. And then all of a sudden, I could feel, I have no, I'll, I'll describe what I felt. It was like a ball of power went from Doug and passed by me, behind my back, and entered into my friend. And it happened so suddenly and so powerfully and so quickly. I turned around, and I was like, what was that? And both of them were like, yeah, did you feel that too? My back was turned. You could feel the transfer of power from one person to another person. Why does God allow that to happen? I don't know. It was really cool. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing that happen again sometime. I wouldn't mind seeing it again soon. Anyway, Jesus could feel that power had moved from him. So when I think you know, Jesus is being honest to him, why, why wouldn't we believe him when he says, who touched me? He, he knew he was touched in a supernatural way where healing flowed, but he didn't know who. He could feel the power move through him. And the disciples were amazed that he, he could ask such a question. Don't you get comfort from the disciples? Boy, they were clueless most of the time. What is going on? I don't get it, Jesus. What do you mean someone touched you? They, they are, they're not tracking with him, right? We have hindsight as we read the scripture. But could you imagine being one of them walking around with Jesus and being in a constant state of, I don't get it, I don't get it. What do you mean? What do you mean we should feed them? I got a little boy's lunch here, and, what you, and there's thousands of people. What do you mean we feed them? I don't get it, Jesus. It would take a year's wages. They're trying to figure out the logical, practical way of doing it. They don't get him. Don't be surprised if you don't get him. Could it be on your journey with Jesus as you walk along with him, he might do things and you're like, I don't get it, Jesus. I don't get it. And it'd still be him. And if you just stay on the journey, if you just keep holding his hand and keep walking down the path with him, maybe it'll make sense later on. <laughs> right? We just don't give up. So the disciples aren't getting it. The disciples certainly weren't understanding the difference between casual contact 
and what Jesus is describing here. That someone had reached out from a place of holy desperation and touched him. The text tells us that the woman, knowing what had happened, knowing that she was the one, stepped up in fear and trembling. You know why it's fear and trembling? Because she's been an outcast for a dozen years. This is a scary thing for her to do. Imagine the emotional conditioning if you're an outcast for a dozen years. Right? You're not supposed to be in crowds. You're not supposed to touch anyone. But she, she was just touched by God. She knows she was touched by God. And God is saying who did it. Of course she's going to fess up in the moment. Now why did Jesus make her go through that? I think he did it for a couple of reasons. So one, that she would know she was healed. That Jesus would offer his testimony to her experience. I think he called her out so that she would absolutely know that she was healed. But I think Jesus did it also said everyone else, this whole crowd that's around him, that they would all know that she was healed as well. Because not only would she would, um, be blessed with the physical healing, but that she would be healed, that she would be restored socially and relationally as well. This, ailment, this woman had an ailment that no one could see and that made her a public outcast. It would have sounded suspicious to many if she had just announced that she was healed. Maybe they think that she made it up just so she would be considered clean again. I think Jesus called her out so that the others would absolutely know that she was healed. And I think Jesus did it so that she would know she was healed. Jesus said to her daughter, you took a risk of faith. The risk was the setting. The risk was where she was where she wasn't supposed to be. Daughter, you took a risk of faith and now you're healed and whole. Live well. Live blessed. Be healed from your plague. Everybody knows this is what Jesus said about her. And Jesus has credibility. If he didn't, the crowds wouldn't have been following. She took a simple risk of faith. She exercised faith. And bam. Jesus healed her. How about verses 35 and 36? At this point, I mean, this is amazing. This is a wonderful story for this woman. But I'm thinking, poor Jairus. Remember, all this happened on the way to his house. His daughter is sick and is at death's door. She's near death. And they're on their way. And from Jairus' perspective, I don't, I don't know, I'm, I wouldn't be too happy at all. I'd be kind of annoyed. I'm thinking, this is an interruption. We were going somewhere. We were going somewhere very important to me. And we took this little side journey. I wasn't planning on this. I didn't want this. So during this seeming delay, his daughter lays in bed dying. It must have been torture for him to take, see Jesus take this time out and minister to this woman. And I tell you, if I'm Jairus at this moment, I'm wondering, because this is how my brain would work, did this woman get the healing that was meant for my daughter? Right? How much healing does Jesus have? Does he have so many portions? Does he have so many units of healing that he can give out in a day? And was this supernatural act really meant for my daughter, but this woman came in and snatched it from me? I don't know. I might have been thinking that at the moment. Who knows? He's a desperate man. I might have hated this woman at that moment. 
And now Jairus would call Jairus, Jesus would call Jairus to an extreme faith with an extreme promise. Verses 35 and 36. It says, while he was still talking, some people came from the healer's house and told him, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus overheard what they were talking about and said to the leader, said to Jairus, don't listen to them, just trust me. Don't listen to them, just touch me. The words, your daughter is dead, the horror of those words. I, I can't imagine, I don't want to imagine. I have a daughter, I never want to imagine what it would be like having to hear those words. How Jairus' heart must have been crushed when he heard this announcement. He must have thought to himself, this is taking too long. And now my little girl is gone. If we had just gotten there in time. And Jesus tells Jairus two things. He tells Jairus to do two things in this moment where he's crushed and devastated. He tells him two things. The first is don't listen to them. And the second is just trust me. And I, I listen to that and my thoughts are, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? In the face of this empirical evidence, I've just gotten tested. They just came to me and told me my daughter is dead. And you're saying, don't listen to them, just trust me. My head's exploding. My head would explode. On the one hand, we have horrific circumstances supported by empirical evidence, your daughter is dead, why bother the teacher anymore? And on the other hand, we have the words of Jesus, where he says, don't listen to them, just trust me. Pay no Heed to your circumstances. Instead of looking at your circumstances, look to me and trust me. Wow. That's amazing. In the face of devastating hopelessness, Jesus says, don't listen to them. Just trust me. It reminds me of Paul's words in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, where it says, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced that the key to hope is trust. I'm convinced that when I can trust God, there's hope. When I'm not trusting him, there's an absence of hope and usually what fill, fills that void is anxiety and fear. Am I the only one? <laughs> That's what it looks like in my world. But when I'm trusting him, there's hope. So I'm convinced when hopelessness is having its way with me, I need to take a look at, I need to take a look at trust. My trust in God, my trust in Jesus. But how could Jesus say to this, this to Jairus in this moment? How could he say this to, to Jairus? I think there's one reason why he can. 
Because Jesus knows the end of the story. And Jairus doesn't. Jairus knows the circumstances he's in right then. He doesn't know how this is going to end. Matter of fact, he's probably thinking it's already ended. They told me not to bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus can say this to him. Don't listen to them. Just trust me. Because Jesus knows this is not the end of the story. In your hopelessness, when the circumstances are crushing you beyond your ability to comprehend, don't listen to them. Just trust him. Jesus can say this to Jairus because he knows the end of the story and Jairus doesn't. And the very same thing is true of us. Jesus knows how our story is going to end. He knows how your story is going to end. And we, even in the midst of our horrific circumstances, we don't know. So Jairus is, Jesus is asking Jairus to change his focus. He's saying, Jairus, don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on me. John Paul Jackson used to say that what we focus on, we make room for, and what we fear, we empower. Jesus is asking Jairus to change his focus. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to fix it. You can't fix it. Don't try to make sense of it all. Just trust me. I love the word trust. It's such a relational term. Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust my nature, my character. Trust my love for you. To us, he would say, trust our history together. Trust our relationship. Trust me. Webster's defines trust as the belief that someone or something is reliable, good, honest, and effective. That's a pretty good definition for trust. The belief that someone or something is reliable, good, honest, and effective. That Jesus, that God is reliable. He's good. He's honest. And he's effective. My two undeniable truths of the universe. You remember them. Number one, God is good. Number two, God loves me. Everything else begins at number three. And today for Jairus, even death of his dear daughter begins at number three. He just doesn't know it yet. Verses 37 to 43. He permitted no one to go with him except Peter, James, and John. They entered the leader's house and pushed their way through the gossips looking for a story and the neighbors bringing casseroles. Don't you love the message? <laughs> Jesus was abrupt. Why all this busybody grief and gossip? The child isn't dead, she's sleeping. Provoked the sarcasm. They told him he didn't know what he was talking about. But when he had sent them out, he took the child's father and mother along with his companions, and they entered the child's room. He clasped the girl's hand and said, Talataikum, which means, little girl, get up. At that, she was up and walking around. This girl was 12 years of age. They, of course, were all beside themselves with joy. And he gave them strict orders that no one was to know what had taken place in that room. Then he said, give her something to eat. Oh, it's a great story. So powerful. Jesus permitted no one to go with him except for Peter, James, and John. This is his inner circle. 
And then he goes into this room filled with mourners and, and makes this statement, the child isn't dead, she's sleeping. Is this tell, text telling us that she was still alive but unconscious? No, she was dead. Jesus wasn't out of touch with reality. He wasn't playing make-believe. He said this because he knew a higher reality than their reality. A spiritual reality that was more certain and more powerful than the natural realm. More real than death itself. You know, in that day, it was customary at a death. Every culture has its customs surrounding death. We have our customs here. I, Nadine and I have lived different places. You do mourning here on PEI differently than we've done in the States. I've been to a few funerals, and what happens is uh, people line up, right? And you kind of go through the line, and then before you get to the casket, there's a whole line of family members, and even the family members have name tags, son or brother or wife or grandparent, right? No, I've never seen that before we came here, never, ever. It's different here. Every culture has its own customs when it comes to mourning. They had their customs. And part of the customs there is that you would hire professional mourners. This is what these people did. They'd play a flute. They would wail. they grieve. And so this room is filled with the professionals. These professionals, they know what death looks like. If you've ever been around dead bodies, you know, there's a difference. There's a huge difference between life and death. And you know instantly the difference between, oh, that person's sleeping and that person has passed. The reason why they ridiculed Jesus, the reason why they mocked him sarcastically, is because they knew she was dead. And Jesus wants them out. Even if you were poor, it was expected that there would be at least one professional mourner and two food players. You've got to remember, Jairus is a, a synagogue ruler, probably a person of some kind of means. He might have had a whole crowd of professional mourners in that room. It's interesting to know how quickly the professionals showed up. And how quickly their weeping turned to ridicule. They ridiculed Jesus. The text says, provoked to sarcasm, they told him that he didn't know what he was talking about. The New American Standard says that they laughed at him. New King James says that they ridiculed him. One commentator said that it meant that not only did they ridicule him and mock him, but they kept it up. It went on and on and on. But the text goes on to tell us, but then he, Jesus, sent them all out, chased them all out of the house, get out, got rid of all the mourners. And he took just the parents and his friends with them, and they entered the little girl's room. I remember hearing John Paul Jackson preach once on this, and he had this theory concerning healing. I don't think I've shared this with you before. Now, why did, he, why did he chase the mourners out and only took his closest friends and the parents? And this is, I'm paraphrasing, this is kind of what John Paul said. He said, let's just pick a number. He says, let's say hypothetically that for healing to take place or raising the dead to take place, you need 100 units of faith. And the people who believe, they add to the units of faith. And people who doubt, take away from the units of faith. This is his theory. And that asking the mourners and the mockers to leave was removing the negative and only bringing in the parents and his close friends was increasing the positive. This was his theory. 
Is he right? I don't know. I don't know. But that was his theory. But I think, I think there was much more to this account than that. I don't think it was, um, I don't think it was mathematical. I don't think it was clinical. I don't think this was like some kind of engineering equation. Okay, we need to accomplish this, so how many of these people do I get rid of and how many of those people do I bring in? I don't think that so much is what was happening as this. It was personal. It was extremely personal. It was tender. This man and his wife just lost their daughter. What could be more crushing? And I think Jesus is being compassionate and empathetic and kind and loving to them in the moment. And what they needed was for these mourners who now turned into mockers out of the picture. And just Jesus and his closest friends to come with him. And what does Jesus do? The text tells us is that he, held, he clasps the little girl's hands. And he speaks over her, little girl, get up. And that was that. And she got up. And she walked around. Jesus spoke to the girl as though she were alive, and guess what? She was dead, and now she's alive. Romans 4.17 says that God, says this, it says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. That's the power that our God has. He could speak to what is not as though it is. Just like he said, let there be light, and out of nothing created everything, he could look at this little girl who's dead, take her hand and say, little girl, get up. And where there was death, there's now life. That's the power that he has. God calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Be it this little girl, be it your circumstances, be it his promises to us, be it our destiny. He can speak. What is not as though it is? He can speak life into death. He can speak light into darkness. He can speak destiny into our very hearts and minds and lives. Jesus spoke to this girl with the power of God, and she was raised from the dead. The word made flesh, dwelling among us, spoke the word of God to this little girl, and she came back to life. And this is the very same Jesus who speaks to you, who speaks to me by the power of the indwelling spirit. And the text tells us that they were beside themselves with joy. Wouldn't you be? I would be. Beside themselves. So what can we learn from this? Jesus did not fail, Jairus. Even though there was a delay, even though there was a delay, do you feel like you've been delayed? On your journey, is it taking longer than you want it to take? Jesus didn't fail Jairus. He's not going to fail you either. He is, the scripture tells us that when we're faithless, still he's faithful. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his word, sometimes in spite of me. That's how faithful he is. He didn't fail Jairus. He didn't fail the woman who needed to be healed, even though for both of them the circumstances looked really bad. Jesus ministered to the needs of the individual, 
And if Jesus can touch each need this personally, he can touch our needs in the same way. And the needs of those that we minister to. Think about it. Jairus had 12 years of sunshine that was about to be extinguished. This woman had 12 years of agony that seemed hopeless to heal. Jairus was an important man, a ruler in the synagogue. The woman was a nobody. We don't even know her name. Jairus was probably wealthy because he was a man of importance. This woman was poor because she spent all her money on the doctors. Jairus came publicly. The woman came secretly. Jairus thought that Jesus had to Jesus had to do a lot to heal his daughter. And the woman thought all she needed to do was just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Jesus responded to the woman immediately. He responded to Jairus with a delay. Jairus' daughter was healed secretly. And the woman was healed publicly. So let's not put God in a box. His ways are not our ways. He does things uniquely. He does things for the individual. It's not cookie cutter. It's not a factory. It's not an assembly line. He touches people at their point of need. His ways are not our ways. We have a big God. We have a really big God. So let's pray. Does anybody have words of knowledge for praying for people today? Anybody already have words of knowledge now? Yeah? Would you, why don't you um, come up and just share that now, and then we'll close in prayer, and we can have people get ministered to. You can use uh, John's mic. And John, when she's done, could you just get up for the last song? back, right ear. Anybody? No. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of my thought. So, I feel maybe Tom can pray this or I can pray this. I feel like it's um, like God is opening up our ears for faith. He's opening our ears for faith. So, yeah. I kind of felt like it was more of a spiritual thing. You, go ahead. Pray it. Okay. And the other thing, Tom was talking about how prayer you know, sometimes you can be in a receiving stance or you can be in a closed stance. Yeah? So, <laughs> sometimes, and this is what I'm feeling this morning, sometimes we have to be in a receiving stance to receive the stuff. So, when you're getting something, you hold your hand out. Like you hold your palm out. So, I just ask everybody to just hold your palm out like this, like you're expecting to get something from him. Does that make sense? You're receiving something, you put your hands up. So, Father God, I just ask that you um, clean out our ears this morning, Lord, that you just um, clean them out, just take out all the wax that might be lodged in there, all the, the hardness, um, that you just unplug our ears, Lord, to hear you, to have faith. For you to 
believe what we read and, and uh, believe that you are a God who loves us and who is here with us and who is for us and who will heal us, God. Just ask that. I pray that over all of the room now, Lord, that you just come and let us hear with more clarity that we've ever heard before. Amen? Thank you, Lord. John, would you come on up? Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, would you let healing flow? Use us, Lord, as your instruments of healing. Use us to heal the sick. Lord, I pray that you would be with us today. Some of us today maybe feel like that woman with the issue of the blood or, or even Jairus. Lord, our circumstances are overwhelming. They've been this way for a long time. It's hard to have faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us all the grace we need to not listen to the circumstances, but just trust you. Give us all we need, Lord, even when our circumstances are overwhelming, to not listen to the circumstances, not focus on them, but just trust you. And in that trust, oh God, give us hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's stand for a final song. <laughs>